As I begin the lesson tonight, I would wish to say a, a word of appreciation to those who visited the, the various places, the Vacation Bible Schools this past week. That certainly was a great encouragement to the brethren there, a great encouragement to my family and me. And we appreciate always your support and your prayers of encouragement in every way. And certainly, as you give thought to the lesson tonight, I entitled it Lessons from the Heavens. And really, I might well have just selected the singular instead of the plural. We're going to really focus on a lesson primarily. But as we do that, I hope that we can be encouraged and reminded that you and I serve a majestic and perfect God who, with regard to the heavens, has actually shown us tremendous evidence that should help us even in some practical ways in our life. The opening slide is the one that is very brief in many ways. But at the very least, could I just point out that as you and I look upward and give some thought, even perhaps by reading, it is amazing what astronomy makes available. Some of the pictures, some of the ideas, and some of the things that astronomers are quick to point out to us sometimes can be tremendously remindful of some of what we read in the Bible. You may have noted the lesson text was worded like this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. In that passage, Psalm 19.1, there's a reference to, of course, the heavens. And you may know it's plural. One of the things we'll do here in a moment is at least give some reflection to that plurality. But then the second part is the firmament. When you and I give thought to the firmament, you may remember it was created on day two, and yet on that day, and with regard to some of the things the Word of God has to say about it, there's truly much that still is an amazing reflection. We're going to look at some of that tonight. This next slide will be one that investigates the first part of that which I mentioned a moment ago, the creation of the heavens. The very first verse in the very first book of the Bible is probably one of the most well-known verses, and maybe you and I have committed it to memory a long time ago, but at the very least we recognize it when we hear it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth His handiwork, that lesson text we've noted. But listen to this one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now that rendering, the one with which you and I are so familiar, does at least beg a couple of observations and questions. It says, in the beginning God created. The word that appears is the Hebrew word bara, B-A-R-A, at least is the way that would look in English. And yet that word has to do with such a tremendous presentation because quite frankly it is something of which man is not capable. It is something that no human being can do. When you think about what God did in creation, I've asked you to note its definition to bring something into existence that was not there before. Creation ex nihilo is the way sometimes that is worded. Can you imagine speaking and causing something to be which was not there previously? May I again say that one of the fundamental appreciations in science today, the law of thermodynamics which says, neither matter nor energy can be created nor destroyed. That says a lot. And science today is predicated. In fact, it rests upon the power of that realization. And yet, here, God violated that law of thermodynamics. He brought into being what was not there before. And as He did so, 
It's not only the fact that he created it that way, but listen to this commentary that the Hebrew writer would present in Hebrews 11, verse number 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Isn't that remarkable? Things which now are, things which are now seen, were not made out of stuff that was already there. God created it. He borrowed it, B-A-R-A. You'll notice next upon that slide, just as quickly as we might note that mankind certainly cannot do anything like this, doesn't it remind us then that that creation of which we read in Genesis 1 was a reminder of the sheer power and almightiness of the God of heaven. He could do this and He did do this. Mankind can only dream about it. We can only fathom what it might be like to create something along that line. Now, with that thought in mind, look at what I invited you to consider next. On so many occasions then, the Word of God in later reflection upon that truth highlights that reasoning for being one reason why we should honor, adore, and magnify God. Because we can't do that and He could. And therefore, verses like Psalm 90 remind us, among other things, the opening two verses of that chapter. That's a psalm, in fact, written by Moses. And as Moses made presentation of it, he applauded in many ways the greatness of God for His creation. Perhaps one of the things you and I do, we too can peer into the heavens on a beautiful clear night and we can be impressed by it and we can in fact be amazed by it. One of the things perhaps we aren't quick enough to do is to honor God who did it and to praise Him for that particular reason. Later on, we're told in Revelation 4, verse 11, that that is the prime reason why we should honor and adore God in that way. May we never lose sight of the sweetness of that truth. The next matter I ask you to consider then is this. When you and I noted that text in Genesis 1, 1 a moment ago, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. To read that in the King James translation, that heaven sounds singular, heaven. The literal Hebrew word's plural. So even there, there's a reference to more than one heaven. And so I thought we might do well to reflect at the bottom of that slide on the plurality of these heavens. What would appear to be the thrust behind them? And what would appear to be the particular connected to each one? It begins like this. In that same chapter, Genesis chapter 1, may I call to your attention a couple of the verses that may shed some light upon this. In Genesis 1.14, now this has reference to the fourth day of God's creative activity, but it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven, to divide the light from the night, I'm sorry, the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So here the word heaven is used with respect to where the stars are. Well, you and I would call that outer space. We would refer to that maybe as the cosmos. And so it would be entirely right to refer to the stars of the heavens. And some of the songs in our book do this. But that's one of the heavens of which we have record here. And again, it relates to the firmament on day two, but it's where the stars are on day four. But look just a few verses later. 
This time, verse number 20 and 21, this time it's day number 5. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. Again, the word heaven is used. This time, it's where the birds are. Now, we know well, again, the birds are flying in earth's atmosphere. That's where they are located, and that's where, of course, they do their flying. So that heaven is again distinguished from the heaven where the stars are. That's two heavens, if you will. But yet how often does the Word of God encourage us to note, such as Psalm 11, verses 3 and 4, the fact that God's throne is in heaven. And of course, that would be yet a third heaven. So we have the heaven where the stars are. We have the heaven where the birds fly. And we have the heaven where God's throne is. And yet each one of them presents to us an element of God's preparation. You may give thought to that third heaven. That's the one to which Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, you may recall, he was taken to this place and saw things which he was not allowed to utter. The Bible calls them unutterable. 2 Corinthians 12 verses 1 through 5. Maybe in that connection you and I notice the third heaven. That is a reasonable description. With regard to these heavens, then the next slide will encourage us to conclude that thought like this. The heavens illustrate in a rather dramatic and in a rather pointed way certainly the characteristics of what God could do. His majesty, His creation, His powerfulness. You and I might for just a moment reflect upon what takes place in earth's atmosphere. Isn't it amazing to think about the various dynamical forces that lead to all kinds of weather-related events? And all of that is in part due to those forces active and alive in the character of earth's atmosphere. But think about that which occurs in the heaven that's where the stars are. Scientists now know about things like quasars and black holes and other things like that. And yet in those considerations, what tremendous matters take place, even to the limit of what present-day physics would even claim to understand. Maybe it is in that light. I hope we have just a sense that if those two heavens present the greatness of God, what about the third heaven? I'm sure we've all pondered about what it'll be like to one day be there, to live there for all the ceaseless ages of eternity, and yet to imagine that just as certainly as God's majesty and power were manifested in the other two heavens, surely it will be there. And mindful shall we be of the one who's behind it and his perfect preparation for all who then dwell there. As we close that slide, what about this? The heavens, as we've mentioned already, present in so many ways the attributes of God's power and might, but they do something beyond that. And that's what we shall focus upon really through the remainder of our lesson tonight. This next slide will begin our discussion toward that end as we attach some significance to God's design and particularly directed as we're now about to see. So, we've already highlighted the fact that in His preparation, in His creation, you have some of the thoughts at the top of that slide. 
God's creation manifests an incredible element of design. There is nothing in it that would lead one to believe that it did itself or that in some kind of haphazard fashion it was brought about. He had an orderly design, and that's what he brought forth. And so it is at the top of that slide. God's creation, as well as the heavens as a whole, oh, how sweetly they make a testimony to that truth. Now, as I lead into this, I again hope each of us will reflect upon that concept of design. The heavens show it. The characteristics of it make it evident. In fact, reflect with me one more time. On that creation week, first of all, the heavens and earth were brought forth in that general way in verse 1. But then, light was first. Day number 1. God separated the darkness from the light. And He recognized that, of course, He gave names to day and night. But in the reality of light, He then made it evident about the possibility of that which goes with light, which is observation which is clear-cut evidence concerning that which is about to be done. So day two, the firmament. He separated the waters beneath from the waters above. And the expanse that's between them, which appeared to grow over time, of course, He called the firmament. Now, we've just learned earlier that, again, that would be closely connected to outer space. And as God stretched it, Many times the Bible highlights that He extended it, He stretched it, He expanded it. Doesn't that indicate again He had something in mind by way of design? There was a reason for that expansion, a reason for it, you see. I would pause at this time to say this. There was a long time that scientists were under the impression that this universe was a static entity. That is to say, it did not grow and it did not shrink. But in the 1920s, that hadn't been all that long ago. Scientists became rather aware of a wealth of scientific evidence, all of which pointed to the fact that the universe is expanding, that the universe is growing rather exceedingly larger in size. That evidence, upon many occasions, has been reflected upon and re-scrutinized, and it's still there. Isn't that a reminder to us of that stretching capacity which God invested in the firmament and that that stretching and that that expansion is still continuing? I say that perhaps to say this. There's nothing then about that element in the Word of God that leads us to appreciate there is no static character to it. Our universe is a very dynamic place. Let's go one step further. Day number three, below those waters. The text says that He gathered the waters beneath together and the dry land appeared. So now we have seas, that is to say bodies of water distinct from land regions or land areas, and also plant life began that day, all under the critical diagnosis and design of the God of heaven. Day number four, now attention is turned again to that which is beyond the waters beneath. And so we see great lights appearing, the sun and the moon, as well as the stars of the heaven. Those are now all fashioned and created and made. And isn't it amazing? 
that the orderliness now suggests this to us. Those things weren't made on day one or even two or three. They were fashioned and put in place on day four. There's an orderliness to that which God did, and that orderliness continues to be not only impressive, but it reminds us He had a reason for doing what He did the way He did it. Day number five. Now, attention is turned back to the earth again. Those waters that were brought together on day number three, those seas, now they are infused with life and an abundance of it. You notice that the waters brought forth abundantly the life that was in them. And not only that, the atmosphere was such that it was filled with life as well as birds and other flying creatures were placed within it. Finally, we come to day six. The land-dwelling creatures are now fashioned and made. And so all the creatures that live and dwell upon land are fashioned. And that, of course, we realize at the end of that day or somewhat later that day, Man is created. The orderliness of that creation, the particulars and specifics of it still are impressive to us. If mankind has any say in it, of course he changes it. How often have you and I thought about this fact? The sun didn't appear until day four, but light appeared on day one. There are many who are quick to say all light ultimately comes from the sun. No, it doesn't. Because light existed before the sun did. Isn't that interesting? Another thing you might consider about all of that is there are times later in the Word of God when references to the creation are made and sometimes the references will have indications about the order. And so you may know about the middle of that slide. We at this point at least have begun to note the orderliness that's characteristic of that which God did. Would you and I now take just a few minutes and note a few other examples of the Word of God wherein orderliness is seen in light of exactly what God said. One of the lessons you and I are going to see from this is if God is so interested in orderliness, if He is interested in a planned scheme that comes about by way of preparation and design, shouldn't that be characteristic of so many of the other arenas in which God's authority is seen? But let's first develop it like this. We've already mentioned about the creation. So Genesis chapters 1 and 2, I merely mentioned in passing. As we arrive at Genesis chapter 6, what about the ark? Noah wasn't just told to build some kind of ocean-going vessel. He was given its dimensions. He was given its height. He was given its width and depth. He was given, you see, many of the particulars, even the wood of which it was to be made. And just as surely as that was highlighted, you and I recall the successful voyage, if you please, which that ark underwent. It worked just exactly as one would have hoped it would. Orderliness? Absolutely. What about the days of the tabernacle, as you and I read in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers in particular? I mentioned in passing about that, but maybe it would be fair to to use a picture to help illustrate that one. When you and I think about the tabernacle, this picture is representative of not only the tabernacle, but the larger encampment of the children of Israel. Would you and I quickly give thought that amongst those tribes of Israel, well, you know, you and I know there were 12 tribes plus the tribe of Levi. 
did they encamp in a rather haphazard or chaotic fashion? They didn't. Here is an indication of the places and the ways in which that encampment was to be set up. When the time came that the people of Israel made encampment, they had to encamp in a way that was somewhat presented like this. Three of the tribes were on the south of the tabernacle. Three of them were on the east. Three of them were on the west. And three of them were on the north. And it's not just that. The three that were told where they had to encamp. For example, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad were told to encamp south of the tabernacle. And that they did. And you can read the rest of it as it's presented. But the place of that encampment was noted. Even that is a tall. I mentioned in passing about the tribe of Levi. If you will notice somewhat inside of that, you'll notice that, of course, Levi had three sons. There was the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites. Even they were told where they were to encamp. The Merarites were on the north, the Gershonites on the west, the Kohathites on the south, and the families of Moses and Aaron were on the, on the eastern side. Aren't you I and I getting impressed? God said this. This is what the book of Numbers demanded of them. If the tribe of Gad had desired perhaps to encamp near to Asher, it didn't matter what you wanted. Asher was on the north, Gad was on the south. In addition to that, isn't that another reminder about the orderliness? And if we had gone inside the tabernacle, we could even furthermore see an extended order. The furniture was placed in particular ways, and that wasn't left to the children of Israel to decide. The dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant were such that God indicated it. The Israelites didn't choose it. The next slide will, in fact, move you and I into this consideration. Once the camp of the children of Israel was in fact broken up and they moved to a different destination, to a different location of encampment, isn't it true there was an orderliness to the order in which the tribes were to march? In other words, when that encampment site broke up, here's what had to take place per the book of Numbers. You'll notice that as they traveled in the direction west to east, the Levites, followed by Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and so on. That's the order in which they had to march. I hope we're all now reminded, if that group of people consisted of well over a million people, which no, it seems clear it did, this was a means of maintaining orderliness in their movement from one place to another, and it would keep things structured in such a way that it was at least a reminder of that which was the will of God. I hope by now we're at least in a position to see that whether it's the creation, whether it was the ark of Noah's day, whether it was even the encampments of the children of Israel, order it seems is seen throughout that which God did. Let's revisit that previous slide. And now let's close that slide with a couple of additional applications. When the children of Israel conquered Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, that's a scene that's quite reminiscent of an incredible sight. As they marched around the city once a day for six days, and then marched around it seven times on the seventh day, 
You may recall that Joshua, as he spoke the matters of God, gave them some very clear instructions of what was to be done and what was not to be done as they encircled the city. And then, on that final completion, there was to be something distinct and then the success of that conquering. And all of it happened. Orderliness? Absolutely. I've just selected a few brief examples. You no doubt could think of many more. But as you and I close that slide, isn't it fair to say that God was behind all of these? And isn't that a reminder about the orderliness seen in that which was His will? Surely you and I could mention biology. I mentioned physics earlier. But as you give thought to the working of the human body, and the various features in which the interconnectedness is seen with an orderliness that is truly spectacular. If you ever have opportunity to read about the nervous system of the human body, I think all of us can stand in amazement at the way some impulse can travel along the nervous system to ultimately arrive at the brain, and the orderliness of the individual cells that carry that message and lead to the response is to call it fascinating and understatement. And that orderliness is part of God's design. I believe by now we're seeing His design almost everywhere. Let's close that slide then like this. The God of heaven is not a God of confusion. He is not a God of accidental happenstance. He is not a God that allows things to develop without a superintending influence or guide, at least by virtue of His presentation. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 33, it is in that place we find, among other things, that God's not, you see, the author of confusion. That word confusion, as we often encounter, is a reminder of things that are chaotic, things that are haphazard, things which, quite frankly, are lacking in design. Now, there's another sense in which modern-day science has come to appreciate what appears to be chaotic, and yet there is an order underneath it. Perhaps that's a consideration for another time. But even that, it did a reminder that our God has instilled order it would seem at every level of His presentation and creation, whether it be the largest scales of galaxies or the smallest scales of subatomic matter. I hope we're impressed. God loves order. He's a God of order. He desires order. And according to His will, He has set it forth in various ways of practical application. We could list a few very quick examples. Just as surely as one then can mention and reflect upon that order. We talked about one of them this morning. The order in the home. As the wife submits to the husband, and the husband is given obligations about that which is to be done, there's an element of order, an element of design in the way in which that family is to be. But what about the second one I've added, invited you to consider? What about the church? Isn't it the will of God that there be order in light of what the church is and what the church does. Now that orderliness is seen among other ways in light of the unity of that body. 
In Matthew 16, 18, the Lord Himself said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. His church is a united body. There's but one of them. And that unity is seen, among other things, in the verses I've asked you to note. Later, as Paul addressed that truth, he, in such dramatic fashion, built an entire consideration upon the reality of that oneness. Among the seven things he mentioned, one body was the first one. One body was the first one. You might have thought one God would be the first one, but it wasn't. We might have thought one Lord would be the first one, but it wasn't. It was one body. There is one body. Now, individuals of that day needed to appreciate that lesson. And surely you and I, and yea, the human family at large, could be blessed by considering it still. The unity of that body. The oneness of which it in in fact is to be. But I would say that that too immediately implies that we look at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. In that location, we find this description again of orderliness. Paul, in writing to that congregation at Corinth, said that they were to be of the same mind, of the same judgment. They were to be those that were characteristic of oneness in terms of their spirit. Now, you and I realize that kind of design and that kind of presentation is built upon the unity of the truth. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth His handiwork just as surely as we learn about His orderliness as we look at His physical creation. It should remind us of His orderliness in terms of His spiritual thrust like the church. The next slide asks one more thing and makes one additional set of applications. Just as surely as Jesus is that one head, a fact pointed out so often as in Colossians 1.18, you and I notice elders. A congregation isn't to be a chaotic mess. It's not various families who pursue what happens to be their preference. Men, qualified men, then have been given this wonderful oversight in which they lead that group of people in an orderly fashion to carry out the work of God in that locale. But orderliness is there. Isn't it still impressive that when Paul gave direction to Titus, Titus, you ordain elders in every city. You don't leave these congregations to move about in a rather undesigned way. You're to appoint these elders ordain them, and allow them, of course, to pursue that which their oversight permits them to do, to give direction and guidance beneath the law of Christ to those who are members of that flock. Nothing has changed about that pattern. It's still a rather fascinating application to notice in Hebrews 8 verse 5. Something is said about a pattern. Would you think with me about a pattern? No, when a person, usually a lady, I suppose, would take a pattern and cut out fabric and make a garment out of it, she's following a pattern which will allow her to develop and generate the article that she's desiring to produce. And that word is used in Hebrews 8 verse 5 in light of the pattern that is the church. God has given a pattern. As you and I then pursue that pattern, we're able to make a congregation like what He designed for it to be. 
It's not then something that's original to us. He's already formed a pattern. He's already made the pattern. All we have to do is seek to follow it, to emulate it. All of that's a reminder of a designer. You see, a pattern can't make itself. The very thing's lifeable. A pattern could somehow generate itself, and yet the Bible is filled with these reminders that God is a God of design, a God of orderliness, and a God who has given us patterns. And the pattern of the church is truly a great one. As Moses followed the pattern in the wilderness and thus fashioned a tabernacle, we today use a pattern, of course, to make a congregation like what God designed it to be. And isn't that a great thought? We are delighted thus to be the church of our Lord, the church of Christ, because He's the one that has the pattern. He's the one that presented it, and Romans 16, 16 calls it by that name. As you close that slide with me, a congregation then, just like a family, ought not be something filled with anarchy and chaos and directed in a way that's haphazard or undestination-oriented, but a family and a church that's organized following the grandness of a designer, the design presented by God. To close that slide and lead us to the next one, which is a slide of conclusion, asks us to perhaps summarize some of that which we've seen this evening. The heavens teach the design of God. In fact, they shout that. You and I could spend hours discussing the intricacies of the solar system, the orbits of each of the planets, the astronomical laws that they follow, and we'd be impressed by the orderliness manifested in all of that discussion. The Bible is a bit briefer than that. It says, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork." So whether one considers the heavens that are the outer space, or the heavens that are the atmosphere of earth, or the heaven that is the abode of God, we are reminded on every level that our God is a master designer, and that His design is perfect and ideal even in regard to things like the church and the family. I hope we are infused with energy and excitement and refreshment as we make ready to serve our God this week, to serve Him in faithfulness following the pattern and the design that He has set forth. It might be tonight someone in this assembly would wish to make a public response to the gospel call of invitation. You realize even in that, that there is order. We don't just ask someone to, in a rather chaotic fashion, try to make a response, but only to do that which the Bible would indicate. To become a Christian involves these things. Belief in the Lord, the repentance of sin, the confession of the name of Christ, and baptism in water for the remission of sins. We never cease to be thrilled at witnessing that and being a part of celebrating it. If we could help in some way tonight, in that way it would be our privilege. But for a person who has become a Christian but has chosen, perhaps even gradually, to step away from that faithfulness, the orderliness which is of God hasn't changed. You and I might sadly walk away from it, but that's not God's fault. I mentioned in passing a moment ago about the orderliness of our solar system. Remember, the planets recognize their order and they obey it. If we are wise, we shall do the same. 
And if you would wish to come back tonight to your first love, we would invite you. But more importantly, the Lord does. And He wants you to be a faithful servant at His side again. Tonight, if we could help in any way concerning that, this hymn of encouragement has been selected. And won't you come while we stand and sing?